I'm your host, Seth Day. I use he, they pronouns, and you're listening to Rad Child Podcast. Hey folks, thanks for joining us for another episode of Rad Child Podcast. So with Thanksgiving coming up, uh, at least American Thanksgiving, as Canadians already had our Thanksgiving, um, but with American Thanksgiving coming up at the end of the month, I thought it would be a good time to talk a little bit about how to decolonize Thanksgiving. And we're going to sort of get into like what that means uh, a little bit in a moment. But first, I wanted to take a moment to do a land acknowledgement. Um, so total transparency, this is something that I've been meaning to start doing for a really long time. And I was a little intimidated by and as I was writing up the questions for today's episode, I was thinking about like how I can acknowledge and support the indigenous communities around me. I figured this was like the, the absolute least thing that I could do uh, for starters. So uh, with that being said, uh, I want to take a moment to acknowledge that the land where I record is situated within Jojage, which is the traditional unsurrendered territory of the Gunyugehaga First Nations. I encourage you to learn about the land you live on and take a critical look at the relationship you have with the indigenous communities around you. There's actually a really awesome website called native-land.ca that'll tell you what indigenous lands you reside on. Despite the fact that it's a .ca website, uh, it does cover all of North America as well as Australia and a sprinkling of other places around the world. So I absolutely encourage you to take a look at that and just think of other ways you can help support indigenous communities. That being said, we're going to go into our introductions. So I'm going to invite my lovely guests to introduce themselves. We're going to just do your name, pronouns, where you're from, your relationship with kids, and your relationship with the topic of decolonizing Thanksgiving. Hello, everyone. Welcome. My name is Violet Duncan. I use she, her pronouns. I am from Kihuan Cree Nation in Northern Alberta, Canada. I am a mother of four, and I am also an educator. Uh, my relationship with the topic of decolonizing Thanksgiving is very, very personal to me. Uh, if you don't know, I'm plain screen Taino. Now, the Tainos were the very first nation, the people, that Christopher Columbus had come and sailed upon and murdered millions. So I take this relationship very seriously as it is personal. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I wanted to also just shoot out another thing that I love your land acknowledgement. There's also a, an app called Whose Land, and it has a map of Canada and the United States, and you zoom in on wherever you are, and it tells you that nation, a little bit of history about them, and you can, anywhere you are in Canada and the United States, you can do a land acknowledgement with the app. And I know it gets tricky because I'm also living in Arizona, and Phoenix is like a border of Akaba Atam and Tana Atam. And, you know, if you're at Arizona State University or you hop over to the Heard Museum, it changes. And they're like 10 minutes apart. So uh, it's, it's a really cool app that you can use as well if you want to uh, do land acknowledgement. And especially if you're living where there's lots of nations. That's awesome. There, yeah, that's what I like. Uh, Native-land.ca is sort of similar, but in website form where it's sort of a map and you can zoom in and you can, you know, um, type in wherever you live and it tells you uh, a little bit about it. And it also actually had really useful information about doing land acknowledgements. And it had like further reading that I did um, that like suggested reading um, and sort of like what to do and what not to do, uh, which was really helpful for me because, um, you know, and sort of one of the things and one of the things I wanted to avoid was like not doing it as a token thing to just like do and so you know it was sort of talking about how how to how to not do that um which i found really helpful so yeah do your before you do things like that do your research my name is uh ali joseph and i am a 
citizen of the Shinnecock Indian Nation of Southampton, New York, and uh, was born and raised in New York City and spent a lot of time with my late grandmother on our land as a child in the summers and uh, holidays. And so I began at a young age, even though I was not a res kid, as uh, many others are, to become this sort of other young person who could go between worlds and uh, often, frankly, had conflicts of understanding about not where I came from, but why, you know, people were so different. And, um, but I do think that as, you know, as I got older, it helped foster an an understanding and a tolerance for difference. Um, You know, these, so I I look laughingly call myself uh, with great pride, a city Indian. Which is to say, you know, I grew up uh, in an urban environment, but I spent a lot of time um, in the country and developed an appreciation for that. I am she, her. So I am a mom of two. Uh, My kids, as of this recording, are nine and uh, 12, nearly 13, a boy and a girl. So I have different experiences uh, with different genders and uh, traditional genders, I should say, and you know, the, the, the sort of the, the ways that they seem to learn and the speed at which they learn uh, developmentally. And I also have spent a fair amount of time working with children in a volunteer capacity in and around the schools. Uh, from a fitness perspective, as a girls on the run coach, I've taught uh, Odyssey of the Mind as a coach, which is sort of a um, problem solving uh, national and actually international amazing program that uh, can be found in many international schools. And I have also uh, worked with children in many other capacities. I'm not a, an educator per se. Both of my parents were teachers and I have the utmost respect for teachers. Having said that, I've, I've actually, uh, I'm a journalist, but I've found other ways to be an educator than the traditional classroom environment. Before we sort of dive into the topic, we talk a lot about, you know, these kinds of topics that are sort of like tricky to talk about with kids or, you know, kind of might catch you off guard. So I'm curious if there's ever, and this doesn't have to be related to this topic, but I'm curious if there's ever been a time where a child asked you a question that you just weren't prepared to answer or kind of caught you off guard. My kids come home with all sorts of questions. Like a lot of them are really crazy. And especially when they were in grade two, grade three, my eldest is in grade six right now. So we're not into high school yet, but definitely grade four got the most questions. My son is in there this year. And I think the most common question is, uh, first of all, uh, are we Tainos or did we all die already? Because Christopher Columbus apparently murdered all the Tainos. And so I'm like, no, son, my daughter, we still exist. Our ancestors of the Taino nation, yeah, uh, they were murdered in millions, but we are still here 300 years later, 500 years later, uh, and we are still surviving and thriving with our songs and our ceremonies. So I think that was, it's more of the most heartbreaking questions is, are Native Americans still here? Is what my daughter asked in grade two. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Uh, you are still here, my girl. Like, yeah, but we don't use the term Native American. Uh, we use our tribe. We are Cree, Taino. We are, uh, my husband is Apache, a Rikrahadatsa Mandan. And those are, we are sovereign nations. We are not Native American. So when they do see Native American, it's confusing because there's no umbrella term. We are not called that. We are not one nation. We are 
over 567 sovereign nations. Yeah, it's kind of weird that we just lump them all together, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's easier. I understand that it's easier, but it's 100% incorrect. So yeah, we are nations, not not one group of Native American. There's actually, uh, when, you were ta- when you were saying like, you know, you're still here, it just made me think about, there's actually a book that I just found out about. I don't know if you heard about this that's coming out called We're Still Here. That's not exactly about that, but it's, it's a kid's book that's coming out in 2021. I don't know exactly when, but it looks really good. It's by the same author that did uh, We Are Grateful. Tracy Sorrell. Ah, Sorrell, that's the name. Thank you. But yeah, I'm, exci- I'm excited about that one because I think like, we learn about like, I mean, personally, you know, as uh, a white person, like growing up in a white suburban area, like I grew, I, I learned it like it was history, right? Like, those people don't still exist. And I think we sort of think about that, think about it like that a lot is like, you know, I mean, for speaking from my own experience. And so that's a really good point. And I do, I'm glad that you brought up the sort of language thing, because I know personally, I, uh, I felt very uh, sort of intimidated by like all the different, you know, we have like indigenous, Native American, um, you know, for here in uh, First Nations, like I hear all these words, and I'm like, okay, which ones are what, when do I use them? And I uh, here here in here in Canada, it's also different than in, in the United States, like for we say for First Nations for the, which I just learned, I thought that was just an umbrella term we use here. But I was told that it is only for folks who are from the area that we call Canada. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. So I, I kind of feel even First Nations is still an umbrella term because I have people saying I'm First Nations. And it's like saying, like, I'm Canadian. Like, uh, it doesn't it doesn't resonate because when you're Indigenous peoples, you come from somewhere. And as an Indigenous person, I know my, my, my nation and my community, and it's those community roots that actually make you into that being. So when somebody tells me on First Nations, it kind of sets off an alarm, like, why are you calling yourself that? You know, you, it's usually, I am Anishinaabe, I am Lakota, I am Cree, I am Zuni. Uh, so it's, it's tricky. And, and uh, I do know that there are people out there, though, like that are, that are uh, the result of the 60s scoop, uh, residential school of the foster care system where they're removed from their narrative communities. And they're like, I know I'm native, but I have no idea. And I, that I have sympathy for. I completely understand. And it's a long road, but I do raise my eyebrow because I'm in the performing arts and we do markets and festivals. And when somebody comes up and says, oh, you're native, I'm First Nations. And I'm like, oh, where from? Oh, from Canada. And I'm like, there's no such thing. <laughs> nobody says that it's like we, we can you know we know each other so we know what community and, and Indian country is actually so small that not even kidding we know each other somehow whether re- relative or friends of a friend but we know what we're all up to so there's no quote-unquote BSing in Indian country because you will be found out we are all like we're all related so we we definitely know when to be called out and that when you're doing performances like me and my husband and we do we talk about our history it has to be correct we have to act like there's an elder from that community in the audience because social media will take your video or your person your presentation who knows who will see it and if you're saying stuff that's not factual you will get called out and that's it's not a pretty picture the terms though i mean i know old schools like my parents 
they don't mind using Indian and American Indian because uh, the American Indian movement, they don't mind using that. But I know as we get more throughout the year, it turned into Native American First Nations, and then it's become Indigenous, capital I, and then it's become tribes. So I can't say it's one way. You're your tribe or nothing. You're your nation or nothing. I can't say that because it's just what you're comfortable with. If you're cool with saying Indian, American Indian, Native American, Native, Cree, Taino, it's just who you are and where you come from. And I can't disregard somebody just because they choose to use American Indian. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it reminds me a lot of um, in the queer community with like the term queer and a lot of people like some people have reclaimed that word um, and some people are like not you know are not comfortable with that word and I think you know like you were saying it's just like you just respect um, when people self-identify with a word right you just respect it but I'm curious like for folks um, who you know don't identify um, as indigenous or with a particular tribe like you know folks like me as far as like what's the is there is there sort of like a term that's the best term to use because I think a lot of people like I, I you know I'm sort of asking you a question that I kind of know the answer to but uh, for our listeners I'm sure that there are a lot of people like me who like just don't you know I don't know what to say and um, what the best terminology is to use. I know that I prefer if somebody said Korean Taino but I do know that I've never been introduced like to my friend and saying hey this is Violet she's Korean Taino like I've never <laughs> been introduced that way so it's kind of like you you don't say, hey, this is Seth. Uh, he's queer. Like, Oh, totally. It's, yeah, it's not really necessary. But I mean, if you were to explain, oh, yeah, yeah, my friend is, is First Nations and these are the nations she's from or she identifies with. I mean, we could, we could get to that. But I think I recommend just saying Indigenous. If you don't know the tribe or the nation, Indigenous is a really beautiful word because it also goes south of the border into United States, into Mexico, New Zealand. I mean, we it encompasses a lot, and it shows that. And then by saying peoples with an S at the end, it it, it shows that they are not just one group of brown people. <laughs> they are <laughs> the indigenous peoples, and that there's more to learn. So as we sort of start to dive into our topic, I'm curious, what does it even mean to decolonize something? So I actually don't use decolonize a lot. The way I think about it is dismantling colonial systems and reclaiming space, space in dance, in ceremony, in music, in teaching. And I think that that's for me is what decolonizing is. And then we can go and branch off into decolonizing music, decolonizing education, decolonizing like different spaces. And it's, it's kind of just reclaiming those. And when we decolonize education, it means telling history as it was. And it's tricky because when there's a battle, somebody won and somebody lost. But it doesn't always play that way in the history books. It's always like, oh, those savages. And don't worry, they were, they were raping and murdering. And that's why they all needed to die. That's, and there's always these reasons. And it's like, okay, you can say that part, but can we also turn it around and talk about what the settlers and what the pilgrims and the pioneers were doing and why they were here? Like, they were suffering and being, they were poor and hungry in their own country. They came to another country to find a better place, and they did. They found this beautiful land in North America, and 
when they came over, they came over with their greedy ways and they decided, and I mean, a lot of it, you should also be teaching religion because a lot of it had to do with religion on why they felt that they owned it, the land, they owned everything. And they were entitled to just take it and to murder people because they were in something that they felt they owned. And I think that if we can teach our children about, uh, what was it? There was this really crazy battle that happened in Europe that was like really bloody and it gets taught in grade four. And I was like, oh my gosh, they're teaching you this? And they were talking about um, uh, mass murder. And I was like, if they can talk about that in grade four, I think we can talk about that in Thanksgiving and also grade four. Like they're, they're talking about really bloody battles in Europe, but they're acting like they came over to the Americas and the native people were like, go ahead, take our land. We don't care. Yeah. Shevelson reservations. And it's like, no, can we please bring that bloody war to this narrative and stop making your ancestors like as if they were, everything was fine and that there was just, savages, people who didn't know how to take care of themselves. And then on top of that, I want them to also teach that Native people were actually very clean. Like they took baths regularly and they were like, it was a lot of time, like ceremony and everything and taking care of food and fish and and, uh, taking care of plants and their children. They were very clean people. And when Europeans had come over, they were still throwing feces in the streets right next to where they're cooking and it's like yeah and you want to say who's the savages and it's like well can we at least leave that word out and talk about how clean native people were on yes they did have wars but they were also they had government systems they were they had their own uh, language and, and and teaching tools and like it was different but it was still very advanced very sophisticated but all of that gets left out until like what third year of university. I mean, not even, I never learned any of that. Like as I learned it through, you know, other people and being right. Like, I know. but I never learned in, in the education system. I, you know, I still remember dressing up like pilgrims and Indians. And like, you know, we had like little, a little, we made them out of paper bags. Yeah. And like, we had our Thanksgiving feast together and like, you know what I mean? I'm like, this stuff is, it, it's still being taught today talking about like how we can teach one thing that's so violent and then you know sugarcoat something else and i think like there's an age appropriate we talk about this a lot but i think there's age appropriate ways to like talk about anything there was a book that i was reading it's called plymouth rocks the stone cold truth and it's from the perspective of plymouth rock (laughs) it's very funny and then there's like a little fact checker who's like like the the rock is like talking about stuff and then the fact checker's like that's not what actually happened one of the things um in the book is that they you know they do talk about um you know the way that the indigenous peoples were treated but they don't uh, you know it's for younger kids right so they're not maybe going into detail about like there it was terrible and bloody and heads were flying everywhere right like you know maybe they're not talking about, but they're still saying like they were treated unfairly and they you know hurt them and you know you can still explain those kinds of things even to young kids yeah and i mean honestly indigenous parents are already doing that because they're coming back with with work saying are we still do we still exist what are native americans so as parents we're already forced to teach what the teacher refuses to teach. 
and we have to make it age appropriate. So ask any indigenous parent that had a child or any educator or nanny or caregiver or grandparent, because they know exactly the words to use. It's not that hard. And when I, of course, every year I have to go into my children's school. It's going to happen again this year virtually. I know it. And we're going to have to remind the teachers, okay, this is not appropriate. It was not nice pilgrims and, and nice Indians sitting down. Let's use the tribe name or the nation name. And it wasn't, there was no turkey. There was like, there was no turkey. There was no big feast. Native people actually brought them eel and deer because they were starving. They were killing each other. And the native people didn't even sit down and eat with them. They were just like, are you guys okay? Here, take this food because you guys are starving. We don't know. And then they left. They did not break bread. So any picture of them having a wonderful feast does not ever look like that because it was deer and eel and they were on the, they were by the ocean. So it's going to be aquatic, <laughs> aquatic feast. And of course, I mean, the nation that went there was, it does not speak for all of us. Like just because the Wampanoag nation went in and helped feed these starving pilgrims doesn't mean that the next tribe would have done that. So you can't say that. And then the native people were peaceful. no, like, no, there was, people were not happy all around. And even that tribe, like, they were like, let them starve. They're, they're crazy. They have guns. They're killing us. And the Wampanoag were like, I don't know. We should just, you know, there, there was shooting going on. They were shooting their bullets in the air. And the Wampanoag were like, are you guys okay? Are you battling? And they're like, no, no, we're just going crazy because we're so hungry. And they're like, okay, cool. Well, we got you some deer. <laughs> cook it up, get fed. And then after they were fed and they felt better, they feasted for like five days or seven days or something. And then they went and murdered a whole bunch of the Wampanoag nation. Like it was like, really? After they fed you, you did that? And it's, that's what happened. If, if teachers do not want to share that, the truth, if they can't share that in their classroom, then don't. Let's talk about fall feast. Let's talk about harvesting. Tell the stories of corn, bean, and squash from the Mohawk, the Haudenosaunee Nation. They have beautiful stories on, on harvesting and on feasting and how, how we can be thankful for what we have and how we can be thankful for what provides Mother Earth, water, how we can take care of water and our earth and our plants and our animals. And it's a time for storytelling where we come close and it doesn't have to be traditional stories. We all have our fun stories in our own families that we can talk about. And we can all go out and take a walk and look at the raspberries that are slowly going out or the strawberries. Or even, you know, provide, see what the hunters are up to, or go fishing. But I always felt like if you can't tell the Thanksgiving story, as history has decided it was where we sat down, because it's not true, then don't tell it at all. You know, because you're just lying kids and year after year after year these kids come marching out thinking that it was all peaceful and it wasn't and I'm like of all the stories why tell that one you guys were awful <laughs> those Europeans were killing native people like you, you, you're telling like the exact opposite of what happened you were starving you couldn't handle it and then you continued to murder the people that helped you that's not a good story want a good story we have them for you 
we have stories of, of, of uh, all time and feasting. We have stories of Thanksgiving. What we do in my family is we have fall feast and we talk about, you know, harvesting. We just finished harvesting some, uh, the last bit of the kale and the carrots and the, and the tomatoes that we grew in our garden. And that's what we're going to be having for salad. And it's a beautiful time to come together. And then, of course, we're going to tell the story of corn, beans, and squash. And that's a really beautiful story on why you grow those vegetables together. And, like, there's lots you can do with this time of year, with harvesting and with fall feast and being thankful. We do not need to tell that story if you can't do it. If you think a, a, a kindergartner can't handle murder and mayhem then leave that story out don't even cover it up anymore and that but I do recommend you tell that story it's a good story they can handle it in grade four and they can handle murder and they can they know what that means and it's okay if they feel shame because every day of school a native kid feels shame every day they feel shame because the teacher doesn't understand their long hair they feel shame because they're not the same color as their teacher, they're brown. They feel shame because they don't have a home like they talk about in the picture books with just a mom and a dad and a dog and a kid. We live in multi-generational homes. We have grandparents that watch their grandchildren. We have aunties that take care of their nieces and nephews. We have, it's multi-generational, multi-disciplinary. It's different. And every day that Native kid goes to school and they feel shameful. And it's like, no, we need to decolonize that, reclaim that space and give that child empowerment. They belong there. Your family belongs there. Your auntie that's raising you or your grandmother, or your grandfather, that's good. This is how we were a long time ago. This is a good thing. And the one day that we learn about Thanksgiving, that one... <laughs> kid that feels shame that's okay we're learning we're breaking those those uh, horrible spooky tales and instead of being a stubborn kid in college and saying that's not what i learned they'll be more enlightened to understand that they don't own people they don't own this land we are all caregivers so um, from a native american perspective I think there are a lot of elements to the idea of decolonizing, you know, first of all, even in this day and age, the real history of, of Columbus and Native Americans and the, the indigenous people, really, they were not Americans, as we all know. Here in this land we now call the United States, which is, in, in our opinion, all still Indian country, as we call it, um, it's important to help teach children at the earlier parts of their education a not sanitized but age appropriate version of what actually happened at first contact so that would be learning the the real history and certainly you know I can provide some resources on that because you know uh, not to veer into politics but it's kind of unavoidable at the moment I think one of the reasons we get to be in the position that we're in as a country is uh, a lack of education towards, or I should say universal education towards tolerance at a young age and an appreciation for difference, uh, whether you agree or not, at least, um, you know, a tolerance, if not an acceptance from your own personal beliefs, um, so that we can 
be respectful uh, towards each other's from a humanistic perspective. I would also say that non-Native folks, as much as uh, Native folks usually are raised with some awareness of this more than uh, non-Native Americans, but um, understanding the honoring of treaties in this country, what those are, and how important it is to uh, Native people and our heritage to have the government of the United States um, honor honor them. And, you know, to my knowledge, the U.S. has ratified, I think at last count, it was in the 370 range, might be more uh, with Native American uh, different nations. We call ourselves nations, not so much tribes. And um, But the average American doesn't know that much about these treaties. They don't know what sovereignty is, which is a whole other discussion, but I could touch on it and what that means to Native American uh, people and, you know, basically to be self-governed, but to still be a citizen of the United States is is sort of um, beyond most people's ken. So that's something helpful to learn, as well as decolonizing the different traditions that Americans have adapted, such as Thanksgiving, which I think is what we're specifically leaning towards talking about today, given the timing, and what the average family could do to acknowledge the history, the, the actual history. And then, you know, supporting Native American tribes, uh, of which there are hundreds around the United States to um, call upon Congress and uh, your electeds to help protect different statutes that impact Native Americans. Um, And in particular, the Trump administration has overturned some Obama-era decisions that have been very harmful, um, both from a land perspective, uh, from an environmental perspective. And so um, I think that is, those those are some of the, the key things that the you know, individuals can do. You know, one of the things I think is interesting is, right, like, let's say that, that somebody doesn't uh, agree with gay marriage, for example. Um, that child, they're your child, is still going to see gay people out in the world, right, regardless of whether or not you think it's okay. And I think there's a difference, like, I think there's this strong idea of, like, well, I don't even want to expose them to an idea that I don't agree with, but, like, they're still going to see it, right? They're going to see different kinds of people in the world. And I think that's why it's so important. And I'm always talking about kids' books especially, but, like, to, you know, be reading books with, like, all different kinds of people and about different kinds of people because then it's not going to be a shocker to them (laughs) when they go out in the world and they see someone in a wheelchair and they see someone with two dads and they see you know someone who's a different color than them and all these different kinds of things and that's why I think like you were saying it's so important from an early age to just learn about different kinds of people and teach that you know tolerance if not acceptance you know ideally acceptance so I'm curious to hear you know a little bit about your schooling and like what were you taught in school about sort of the Thanksgiving story yes well you know I'm going to date myself here but I am a, a woman in her 40s and I was, uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier, raised in New York City. And so I was a product of the New York City public school system primarily, except for a short stint in private school. And I was taught probably quite likely much of what you all are taught, uh, were taught, excuse me, or, or and what many people may still be taught today, which is that, you know, Christopher Columbus was a hero. He came to this country and um, or rather this land and quote discovered it, which of course we all know by now is patently untrue. And uh, you know that na- indigenous people were here and and everywhere around the world. And you know for the most part we're doing just fine. 
and certainly better than when they came and brought disease and uh, cruelty and rape. And, you know, so this is not how we explain it to children in those terms. But, you know, we certainly, I always dispel the myth that this was a friendly encounter, that there was some, you know, that there was a, a meal in the way that it is described, even though they're, they're, you know, to my recollection and understanding of some of the literature, there was, there were, was a meal um, but a lot of this was predicated on deception and, you know, a lack of understanding about what the interaction was actually going to um, lead to in terms of the impact, the negative impact on the indigenous people. So I was taught similar things. You know, you'd have your, your textbook and there'd be the happy Indian and, the, you know, and, and, the, and the, you know, manly looking Columbus and with all swashbuckling with, you know, bejeweled and whatnot. So, uh, but, but uh, this may be get your next question, but in, in order to combat that, even when I was in grade school in the 1980s, my family members from the Shinnecock tribe, uh, authored by my mother, who was, um, you know, a, a historian herself and very active in bringing the culture to me as an only child and making sure that I had a considerable amount of interventions, you know, to ensure that I was not believing what I was taught in the school system, would come to my very progressive public school and would, uh, with some of my elders from the tribe, who would schlep into New York City from the Shinnecock Reservation, which is way out on Long Island. I miss the word schlep. I'm, I lived in New York City for many years, so I'm from Long Island. Yes. Well, <laughs> right, right. So the footnote is that I'm actually also part Jewish on my dad's side. So <laughs> I have a, a, a varied vocabulary, which contains all sorts of different ethnic, you know, um, you know, comfortable references, some from Yiddish, some from, you know, from the Algonquin tongue, though less so, and, and things like that. So it's kind of interesting linguistically. But anyway, uh, so they would come in and they would come in their full tribal regalia. I would wear mine and be very proud of that because um, as a white appearing person of color, I that was always a, a surprise and a point of interest um, to other children, purely largely from a curiosity standpoint, you know, because they had only ever seen Indians in movies with cowboys and Indians and, you know, and white people playing Indians in blackface and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So they would bring traditional dishes and uh, serve the children. And this is back when you could bring food into schools and not be, you know, uh, kicked out for allergy interventions for not being conscious enough. And so it was in that, you know, small way that my mother felt it was important to try to alter the perception. And then uh, as a parent, I chose to do that myself for my children. So when they were younger, I happen to also live in a fairly progressive area. The teachers have always been very amenable to me coming in and speaking to the children about some Native traditions, some, um, um, some, some uh, falsehoods and you know incongruous things in the history, and really providing a sort of very distilled, very short People's History of the United States, Howard Zinn style um, analysis of, you know, of what they what really happened. So they understand. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, honestly, as an educator myself, like, great, I can try, you know, as a, as a white person, like I can try and do the research and I can try and be as accurate as possible. But especially as a classroom educator, it's always best to just like have someone from that culture that you're talking about to come in and talk about it, right? Because they're, you know, they're a better, you know, the best kind of resource. Absolutely. In your in your personal opinion, do you think that folks can still, you know, celebrate Thanksgiving if we acknowledge the truth of what happened? Or should we just like not celebrate Thanksgiving? 
I think that the idea of Thanksgiving is beautiful. That's why we call it Fall Feast. We all need a break to come together and just like pig out <laughs> and, and hear stories and communicate and talk about whatever it is that people talk about, politics or education or music, the arts, whatever. We do need these holidays to come together. And sometimes we have to invent our own to come together because we don't fall into the, the mainstream holidays to do that. But I do think that having a, a day of giving thanks is a beautiful thing, as long as it's doing just that, being thankful. And it's really tricky if it comes right before Black Friday because you're like, I'm so thankful for everything I have. And then we go berserk, you know, <laughs> getting, getting everything at the price and prices being slashed. And uh, if it was really a time to cherish each other, I feel that it would be a much more beautiful place. And I do think that if people are ready to hear that story, of the Wampanoag and are ready to talk about mass murder and, and rape and, and uh, what happened to the native peoples, then geez, I don't know what that table looks like, but we definitely have to stop with the inaccurate stories, which is the pilgrim and the Indian sitting down and eating turkey, which is 100% false. <laughs> you know, I, I think this is often discussed and um, indigenous people are asked for their perspective and obviously, it, you know, it's, it's up to the individual. I am, as a personal and family historian and journalist, always a fan of getting family together to tell stories and share legacy and the national holidays, you know, regardless of their origin or um, any religious or you know, cultural associations are, in, in a sense, the only times in modern life that many families have to gather as a larger group and to honor their elders. And one of the main tenets of, of indigenous culture is to honor your elders in a way that you don't tend to see uh, in the West as, as unfortunately, as much um, in modern times. And so what, what I would say to you is I have no problem with people celebrating Thanksgiving with the caveat that it would be responsible to your children and your family if you made an effort to acknowledge the first people of these lands and what, in some sense, what actually happened and share a little bit of actual Native American culture. You could even integrate a, a Native dish into your Thanksgiving meal, uh, which some of which are quite tasty and, and healthy because they come from the earth. But And even if you don't want to do that and you're a traditionalist, use the time to capture stories of your elders. I have a small production company that I don't do much with at the moment since I went back to traditional journalism, but it's called Seventh Generation Stories. The website is being worked on. So if you go there, I, I, you won't see anything right now. But essentially for the better part of, a, of 12 years, I've been chronicling family histories for groups and private clients. And they're not just native folks, uh, but occasionally, but more often uh, folks, you know, just who hire me to preserve their parents or their grandparents, if they're lucky enough to still have them stories for future generations. So, you know, have your Thanksgiving, but instead of just making it about overeating and take a little time every year to, you could do a blessing if you're, you know, religious or spiritual and acknowledge indigenous people, you could, you know, talk at the table briefly 
to the children present about, you know, some of the real elements of Thanksgiving. And you could sit around and tell stories and listen to your elders. And that is, frankly, the principal reason I think that Thanksgiving is a, is a valuable holiday and record them and, you know, have somebody with their, you know, their, their smartphone, you know, recording in a quiet place if possible. You know, sometimes, oftentimes elders in particular feel shy or that what they have to say or what they've experienced isn't important anymore. And so they are shy to tell their stories, but what they often don't recognize is that it's so valuable to the younger generations, even if they don't know it yet. But, you know, sometimes when people realize they should care, it's too late. And so that's what I always um, advocate. Hey, folks, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Rad Child Podcast. It's just the regular stuff today. So just a reminder that if you're interested in some awesome kids books about lots of topics we talk about here, uh, you can check out a kidsbookabout.com. And if you use the code RADCHILD on checkout, uh, you'll get $5 off, which is awesome. Other than that, uh, you probably already know where to find us, but just in case you don't, you can follow us at Radchild Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to contact us, you can email radchildpodcast at gmail.com, or you can go to www.radchildpodcast.com under the Contact Us section. If you'd like to be a guest, there's also information in the Contact section about that. Um, we're always looking for guests, so please uh, check that out if you're interested. You can also find some awesome merch on our website uh, under Store. Or you can go to uh, Etsy.com and just search Radchild Podcast. We are the only one. Uh, we have postcards, stickers, buttons, all sorts of cool things. So definitely check that out. Uh, and last but of course not least, if you would like to join the ranks of Emma, Kai, Alex, and Sarah by giving us a small monthly donation to help us just cover our costs really, uh, that would be awesome. And you can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash Radchild Podcast. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. And uh, yeah, you can get some awesome rewards like bonus content, like bloopers. You can get personalized kids book recommendations. You can get actual kids books. Um, you can get lots of awesome stuff. So definitely, definitely check that out. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and if you're not able to support us financially, that's totally fine. Um, but you can definitely support us by just spreading the word and uh, letting people know that you like us and that we're out there. Um, all right. Thanks so much, y'all. Back to the show. Do you wish more picture books truly reflected your family's values? Have you ever thought you found the perfect book, but when you got it home, it completely missed the mark? Shift Book Box is a picture book subscription service for kids ages 3 to 8, built around themes of social justice and centering diverse characters and creators. Each box features two beautiful picture books as well as expertly crafted discussion guides. We know that families want to engage kids in conversations about social justice topics, and we recognize how challenging it can be to find the right books and to feel supported in having these conversations. We find the books. We provide the prompts. You get both delivered to your door. Subscribe today at shiftbookbox.com and use the code RADCHILD. RADCHILD. All one word. RADCHILD. RADCHILD. For 10% off your first order. Shift Bookbox. Curating little libraries. Cultivating big change. 
so sort of jumping back to what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago, I'm curious, like how, how can we talk to, you know, kids of different ages about the truth of what really happened between the Wampanoag people and the English settlers while keeping it sort of age appropriate and not making it sort of like scary and violent? My daughter is now in grade two. And last year she had a paper that had on one side uh, Pilgrim and on the other side Indian. And it's like the Pinterest tacky Indian, you know, the cliche mishmash of stuff where somehow they're in like random buckskin with some fringe and war paint on and like football style war paint. And the other side is a pilgrim with a hat, black dress. And then you open it up and you see what we have similar and what we're different. That was the big activity. And I was like, what the hell? It's like last year. It's like 2019. I'm like, seriously? We, and I, of course I go in there and I'm like, what the heck is this? And she's like, a, a lot more nicer. But she's like, I found this on Pinterest. I thought you would appreciate that. And I was like, why would I appreciate that? This is just, it's beyond being inaccurate. It's, it's shameful to my child because she is not Indian. She's Cree and Taino. And she has powerful roots that she knows who she is. And when she sees this mishmash caricature of her people, it's, it's so discouraging and that actually reinforces her, the suicide rate that's already on her, the dropout rate that's already on her, the abuse that could happen. All of that actually gets folded tenfold because her, her idea of herself was dismantled and put into this caricature and the whole class was like, hey, Thomas is an Indian and she's like, that's me. And when she goes, hey, that's you. And they're like, no, I'm not. I'm not a pilgrim. They don't have those anymore. And I'm like, great. So you can step out of that stereotype of a pilgrim. But we can't because we're still brown. So I have to say, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Re-educate yourself. Decolonize the education on that. And if you're not ready to tell the story of what really happened, then do not tell it. Talk about corn. Talk about the importance of that. We had corn squash here in in Canada and the United States and that's what was harvested and they grow together they're called the three sisters we had um, you know our hunting ways we all have our own way of fall feast when we all come together like right now we're smoking um, elk at my grandmother's house and that smoked meat is going to take us right through the winter that's what we're going to be eating and you know it's like your, your beef jerky you find and that's what it's all like we can talk about that talk about harvesting there's lots of activities on corn and making little you know little things and stuff but if they're not ready to tell the story the the real way then no more lies just take it out and when that teacher said well what do I teach I'm like literally there's so many things you can do instead of that that's not the one and all and when I talk to the principal they're like oh yeah absolutely I didn't know they're still teaching that I'm like there's lots there's lots we can do instead so it's not like pinterest is the only end all on how to teach thanksgiving well i think it it doesn't have to be that complicated from the perspective of teaching children that you know people came here from Europe on boats and they believed, you know, Columbus believed that they, he had discovered something, but first emphasizing that that is patently untrue. There was, he didn't discover anything. He happened to sail 
right? And thinking he had, had reached um, the West Indies, right? The West Indies, but and Indians, right? So um, giving them a real sense of the timeline, you know, because um, we learn about the Mayflower and Pilgrims. And prior to that, we learn about Columbus and the Wampanoag later on. And so, you know, the, the, the first Thanksgiving, if you're talking about that, I think was not until the 1800s um, in, in actuality when New England folks decided that this was there was there was a holiday to be had, and I don't even think it wasn't even an official holiday until 1863, declared by by President Lincoln. So you know, the first Thanksgiving from the perspective of 1492 is not actually true, um, and also really telling kids that look, there are bad people in the world, and sometimes they come under the guise of friendship when they want to get something you know, and that persists today. And it's a cautionary tale. And that's what I would say. I mean, children's uh, fairy tales are cautionary tales and always have been. And yet, as terrifying as some of them are, they're deemed fine. So why can't we as responsible uh, adults and educators afford our children who are very bright and perceptive, uh, even in their earnestness, the same awareness. I'm a very like practical person. I like to be like, okay, there's a problem. Like, what can I do? And so uh, I'm curious, like, what are some sort of kid-friendly ways or things that we can do to help support the Indigenous communities around us, right? Like, land acknowledgement's awesome, but like, what can we actually do? Learn about where you are. I live in Arizona with my husband. It was really important to me that I learn about the, uh, the Tana Atam, Akama Atam, Navajo Nation, the Pima, Pimach, these are the traditional peoples from there. And when I look out the, the window, I'm like, how did anyone survive here? It's so hot. It's so dry. You're like, it's a desert. Like, no joke. This is not like like uh, Utah where it's like, it's a desert, but we got trees here. It's like, no, this is all out desert. Cactus, a tumbleweed flowing across the highway. Uh, I don't know how anybody would have lived here. My husband looks out and he like, he can go in the desert and see a pharmacy and see a grocery store. He could survive. And I think that when you learn about the people who were here before, there's a real appreciation for how they survived and how you can too today. So when people go on a hike and they like don't bring enough water, I think that if they were to research, because there was no horses before contact, there was no horses. There was only dogs. And if you're like, how did you, you just walked in this dry, hot heat? Well, check out their regalia. They had sandals back in the day. They had these like pergolas for their homes and the different leaves that they would use would provide like a really um, fresh, clean ventilation in their homes. And I'm just really thankful and I appreciate being there more because these people who have been here for thousands of years they they survived somehow and i think that when you kind of build on that so when you find out who's been here how they survived and then you learn about that especially if you're an educator giving that historical power to your students letting them know that before this mountain was called camelback mountain because obviously there was no camels here before that the native people called mm -hmm. it this and they called it this for a reason there's also a mountain in Arizona called Superstition Mountain. Now, it was told before that there's this old miner uh, that went in there and he's looking for gold and he died and he's haunting the place. Well, before that old white miner died, 
in Superstition Mountain. That is believed to be where crown dancers had lived. And crown dancers are very powerful wind beings from the Apache people. And they come out in ceremony. And you don't go there. Like Native people are like, you don't go to that mountain known as Superstition Mountain. That's their home. And they'll take you. And when I hear about the old mm. white guy that went missing, I'm like, yeah, the, the, the crown dancers took them. <laughs> probably, like, obviously. But they don't know that history of the crown dancers. They only know up until that white guy that went missing. And so they called it Superstition Mountain because people go missing there. And I feel that if you gave that knowledge mm-hmm. of the crown dancers and how they should be respected, not feared, you give them respect it will have those students have more respect. So when they're hiking, they're not going to be leaving their trash on the trail. They're not going to be trying to smoke or party up there. Yeah. It's a respectful and sacred mountain that if you're going to hike it, it should be done in prayer. It should be done um, as a more of a, of a, of a, of a, a, how do you say, just a way to empower yourself, not a place to party. And I think that when people go there with greed, yeah. with, with partying sense, yeah, those are the ones that, you know, history has noted went missing. And I think that by telling those students that, it, it inspires them to say, wow, this is not just Arizona. This is the home of the Pima. This is the home of the Navajo, the Apache. So I think that by giving them that kind of power. So here in Canada, in Kihuan, uh, it's the home of the Cree. And the Crees, they're like, the Cree is a huge tribe, a huge nation. They go all across Canada. And I'm like, actually, we're a bunch of tiny nations. We, we didn't travel as a big group of people. And the reason why is because we followed the buffalo. We had to pack up our teepees. And they were like a tent. Mm. They would go up and come down really fast. And you would, we would follow the buffalo. And that's why we only traveled like less than 30 people, maybe 100 in the winter. But we were a very, very small community of just family. And that is why there was no such thing as, as uh, rape or incest. Because if any man ever did anything, he didn't own the teepee. The woman would kick him out and he would leave everything behind. <laughs> the woman took care of the teepee and he was just there as a, as a provider. And so if he did anything wrong in the community, like abuse, any form of it, he would get kicked out. And he'd be on his own. And I think that that way of that empowerment to the women speaks to how we do our ceremonies, how we do our dance, that the woman owns everything and that the man has to get mm. like, straighten up or you're out. And um, I think that that's a, I like that. yeah, that's a like like powerful rules. way of being. And I think that if you know that and you teach that, it lets you give more power to women. So when you see them, they're not treated as like second-rate citizens, as, uh, as, you know, this whole missing and murdered indigenous girls and women. If you see them more as yeah. powerful and sacred being and you give them that respect because they own it, that's their home, you are a visitor, you, are, you, you give them that respect. But if you're teaching like, uh, yeah, there was Native yeah. people here, but now they're gone, yeah. It gives you the right. Well, you're gone now. I'll disrespect you because history didn't respect you and I'm not going to either. So I think that as educators, learn about where you're from and then pass that that history on. There are a lot of great organizations that provide resources for educators on um, teaching 
children about indigenous culture, uh, particularly the Smithsonian, the National Museum of the American Indian, whose website is AmericanIndian.si.edu um, here in the U.S. and that and many others, which provide tools for educators. First of all, second of all, I think that it is a responsibility of a even a grade school teacher in their social studies curriculum to include as many now do a Native American unit, but they do not ever, to my knowledge, or I shouldn't say ever because that's that that's an assumption, but often the teachers are given a curriculum which may be more factually accurate than, you know, what I learned and maybe you learned in school decades ago. It still often does not have a Native American consultant. So what I advocate, and I have advocated this in my own children's school district, is that school districts, uh, all of them, retain a Native American historian consultant at their expense out of our taxes to help shape their social studies curriculum. Because the unit is never, it's never particularly long. And, and, and in, at least in, in this area where I am currently in New Jersey, the Lenape people were the dominant uh, tribe right in this area. And so the schools do teach uh, a good amount of uh, Lenape area history. But again, it's not really informed by uh, always by a Lenape person, you know, who is alive now to say, here is what I learned culturally that I can share with you children. Well, I think it's so important whenever you're doing something where you are uh, talking about um, another another culture or an experience in general that's not your own, right? If, even if you're a writer, you're writing a character that's not of your own experience. If you're an educator, you're teaching about something that's not of your own experience. You you know you should always get someone to consult and pay them money <laughs> for their yeah. time and effort. Oh, hundred <laughs> percent. This is not a, vo- a volunteer experience. But, but Let's people just be often fair. think that it should be. They're like, oh, I'm doing you the grace of teaching about your people, so you should just do this for free. And like you know and this happens to me a lot as a trans person you know people like uh, I when I was living in New York City I was in the theater community and people be like oh read my script and I'm like I'm not gonna read your script for free like right that's a service dear yes Yes, that is my time and my expertise (laughs) both you know culturally and experientially and so no Uh, but but and then the other thing is uh, touching back on the point we were just discussing that you know in a lot of traditional storytelling avenues, kids are given cautionary tales, morality tales that are terrifying. And those are the old ones like grim fairy tales. Oh, yeah. and, so and it's don't go off with the strangers and don't do this. And uh, now all of them are real life lessons and they're, you know, couched in these tales as um, things that naughty children did or whatever. Right. Those were deemed fine for centuries. And so now there's, I feel like children can be called upon, even ones who have, you know, just learned to write in the earlier grades to become politically engaged and to support Native American issues. And uh, as I mentioned much earlier, treaties and discussions about things going on in Indian country that are of concern around you. Because most likely, if you live in what is now the United States, there is a tribal issue somewhere within your state. 
Yeah, um, that is possibly being legislated and legislated poorly as a disservice to the indigenous people. So I would say that teachers should encourage, should, you know, find in their own home state uh, an issue so that it's relatable. You know, it does, kids can't, it's hard to learn global politics or even international politics when you're, it, it has no relevance to you. But if, if mm-hmm. you're teaching, for example, in our school district, Lenape heritage and the, and about the land in this area and some of that is is taught in the geography sections. Then why not also look into current native issues that are you know under fire or uh, being contended and and encourage the students to write letters to Congress right mm-hmm. to engage with their to do a civic duty. I think that is a way of actually helping to support the development of a critical thinker. Yeah. As as in not just what's in your textbook, because it may or may not be accurate. And Mm -hmm. you may not have as a teacher, to be fair, the power to alter that curriculum. I hear that a lot. But it doesn't mean you should be impotent and, you know, just teach what the book says, in my opinion. And also, even if you can't alter curriculum, like I, I'm thinking about it in, in the terms of uh, being a nanny, right, where I might read a book to the kids. And mm-hmm. I even if I have to, I mean, as a nanny, I have the luxury that I don't have a curriculum to follow. And I can just change words in books if I don't like them. But even if I, you know, with older kids, even if I read the actual words in the books, I might say, Hmm. What do you think about that? Right? Like, let I'm reading Sleeping Beauty, and like he just kissed her without consent, and then they got married the next day. Do you think that's like a thing that people should do? You know, right. and and so I think it's okay, even when you have to teach curriculum, to say like, hmm, let's critically think about this. Right? Does right. that sound like? And so I think it's okay, you know, to and of course it depends on a lot of things, but um, because as an educator, which is why I chose not to educate in the K through 12 system, there's a lot of red tape, but you know, I think that we do, sometimes we forget that we have the ability to just talk, talk about things and like kids can critically think about things and that's a skill that you're helping to teach them too. Right. Oh, and one other thing, you know, I think it should be emphasized in terms of teaching cultural uh, understanding and tolerance that uh, Native American traditional dress is not a costume. And since you know, we happen to be recording this a little bit in advance of Halloween, which, um, you know, for, for the fun factor, unfortunately, you know, is going to be very different this year due to COVID. But do not let your child dress as an Indian, please. Do not let them wear a headdress or dress as Pocahontas. And it's con- it's confusing too, right? Because Disney made a Pocahontas movie and there are a lot of uh, probably um, traditionally gendered girls, but maybe some boys, you know, who want to be Pocahontas. And uh, unfortunately, it is considered cultural appropriation. And those are traditional native dress. So it is not uh, appropriate to dress um, as an Indian. Before we wrap up, I just have one more question, which is, you know, how can we write? So I have this knowledge, I want to, you know, I want to teach my kids or the kids in my life, right, about North American indigenous communities and cultures. How can I do that respectfully? Um, and sort of like the difference between, right, like appreciation and appropriation. It is a tricky line. To me, it's not tricky. It's pretty black and white. But I do know that <laughs> when you're first getting into it, a lot of people are like, so I don't don't the headdress it's like uh don't you don't that's that's a very sacred item do not go there but i can see how mainstream society has led you astray so cultural appropriation is the adoption of an element of one's culture by members of another culture that means that you see the headdress think it looks cool so you wear it 
and you don't give a rat about the history or the protocol or anything because you choose not to research it, learn about it, care about mm. it. Appreciation is educate yourself, learn about it. Why, why are Native people so mad when somebody wears a headdress at a Halloween costume contest? Why are they so mad when it's on a t-shirt with a skull on it? And when you learn about who gets the headdress, like the very powerful people in the community. Now, these very powerful people, mostly they're elders because it's, it has eagle feathers on it. And in order to get an eagle feather, you have to do mm -hmm. something amazing. And sometimes that's just uh, graduating high school. I got my eagle feather. I graduated college. I got my eagle mm. I got married. I got another eagle feather. So it's not like I saved somebody's life. It's just something that my community says, <laughs> we see you, we love you, we want to encourage you. And to have a fully eagle feathered out headdress is such a powerful symbol that it's really only reserved for people mm. who are just so amazing, like our chief, like um, people who, who have done amazing things in their life, we want to say thank you. Now, that being said, every nation does it differently. The Plains nations, like the Blackfoot, Lakota, Cree, uh, Den uh, Dene, mm -hmm. Dene, Dakota, we all have headdresses and we all give it differently. So just because one nation wants to give a headdress to somebody who's got their master's uh, or became a doctor, doesn't mean that another person can't give the headdress for being an incredible dancer in the powwow field. It definitely mm. is not one way of being. So when you're appreciating something, you definitely want to research it. And stuff like ribbon skirts, uh, earrings, sweetgrass, those are okay. Those are kind of crossing. It's like a blurred line. Those are not only for Native people. But who made it is what the appreciation is. You mm -hmm. want a ribbon skirt or sweetgrass or sage. It's really important that it's made or picked or harvested the correct way and in a good way. That means like you put down tobacco or you made your ribbon skirt, you know, out of whatever love or however you make it, that you receive it that way, that you got about it in a good way. When we start buying dream catchers and it says made in China, it loses the symbol mm. of what it's made for. When you buy it from a native person, uh, they'll let you know the story, even the tribe. The, the Cree people, we don't make dream catchers. That came from out east and where you are, Anishinaabe territory. And so mm -hmm. you won't see Crees really making a lot of dream catchers here. Uh, I have one. I have one over my, my girls' beds, uh, but I definitely got it out mm -hmm. east. Um, sweetgrass. Me and my girls picked the sweetgrass this summer. And when somebody does something, you know, and you want to thank them, and usually, you know, you send them a bouquet of flowers or whatever. Our way is to send them the sweetgrass because... We put down tobacco, we braided, mm. and we picked it, and we, we braided it. And so when we give that as a gift, it's not just a thank you. It's a, it's a wholehearted, we, we want you to have this, and you'll smudge with it if you want. But it's understanding where it came from. And I think that if I was to go to mm. Japan, I was to go to Tokyo, or somewhere where it's totally not my culture, that's how I would want to do it. I wouldn't want to just kind of take on, um, yeah. you know, the, the clothing that a geisha wears or, uh, and just start wearing a kimono around. You have to, you should research it. Are you allowed to? And of course, the best way is to go to the people and just ask them because uh, a lot of people, they won't hoard the knowledge. They want you to learn. 
it's not like, nope, Google it, find out for yourself. <laughs> no, no, we're, a lot of indigenous peoples, they're willing to give the information, but um, they don't have to. Like we, I know that I guess asked a lot of stuff on history yeah. and protocol and it's, it, it is exhausting, but when they come at me in a yeah. way, yep. then I feel become like- default educators. Yes. <laughs> so just a, a couple of things as we wrap up, I'm curious if you have any resources, you know, about this for kids, adults, can be books, shows, websites, whatever, anything you can think of. I'm actually working on an app and I, who knows where it'll be. Uh, but I'm hoping mm. to, that it takes off 2021 <laughs> and this app will just be full chock full of resources. So there will be a button that specifically says Thanksgiving and it'll have some age groups uh, and it'll talk about how we can teach it and different ways that we can teach it. If we want to, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah. The Wampanoag story. You want to teach that one and you're ready for that one, you know, buckle up because it, it ain't your typical <laughs> story that you've been taught or you want to talk about harvesting. And that's what it's all about. Like fall feast, being thankful. You want to talk about how different tribes were thankful, like in Arizona, what were they doing there? How could they harvest? It's a desert. And it's like, yep, they did. They survived and they harvested. And these are the kinds of foods you can eat to support, you know, the way it was. It was uh, the indigenous peoples harvested and feasted way back when, which is not that long ago. It's not like 500 years ago. People were still (laughs) like less than 100. So, I mean, it's we're kind of going back that way. So it's good to know how to survive in a desert because I don't. And so this app is coming. Thanksgiving is a huge button that's on there. Of course, the other button is just the resources. There's so many resources. Um, I wrote three children's books. And upon reading them, I realized that teachers need something to teach on Thanksgiving. And so when I started to Google, I was like, okay, Pinterest, eh, you know, it's cute, but it's not the place to go. Teachers Pay Teachers is not very good because a lot of non-Native people are making the content. I see where there's where you would normally go. Of course, Teachers Pay Teachers. Of course, Riff. Of course, Pinterest. But it's like, no, 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 no. Nobody's going to those places. And the resources that I did find are amazing, but they're very hard to find because they will literally be on the tribal website. They'll be on the, the reserve website. And so I'm like, nobody's going to find this, this awesome teaching tool or this history lesson or this coloring sheet. Yeah. I'm gathering up these resources. If you want free printables, if you want to teach a story, like there's a museum in the Wampanoag, if you want images. And I think that's what we all need as parents, educators, teachers, whatever you you call your way of teaching. I'm like, I need this app. So I'm going to create it (laughs) so we can all find these resources because I was trying to make a lesson plan book and I was like, no, I'm not going to reinvent the reel. There's so much good stuff already out there. (laughs) I kind of gather it up, make it easy to find. So look out for my app, check out my website, www.violetduncan.com because that's where you can find my three children's books. The, The app whose land is awesome because it helps you with land acknowledgement and what the people who lived there before were eating and doing and how to say their name phonetically so you're not struggling through you know anishna <laughs> or Nehiao. you don't have to reach out to your random communities <laughs> like i did <laughs> yeah there's just there's help me yeah. 
Definitely. And then, of course, fill your library with any books that have anything other than a Muniao boy, which is a non-native boy. Get, you know, get, get black and brown people on there. Get people in wheelchairs. Get people who... Who don't who are binary, mm-hmm. you know, just just fill your library with everything besides that that um, nuclear family because we all don't look like that. And the more we fill our libraries like that, the more our children go to school feeling shameful. So I gotta say, any book, there's tons, yeah. especially now with oh. the BLL movement, there's tons of books being spotlighted. It's not like they just came out; they've been out for 50 years. But we're finally spotlighted, <laughs> so they're easy to find. Just Google around. So I, I I'm like, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's it's so important. And we talk about we talk about just like diverse kids lit a, a lot on this podcast. And um, you know, I've always right like I, I literally don't own a white baby doll. I have three baby dolls, and they're all <laughs> turned shades of black and brown. Like yes. I just don't. I'm like, you are gonna see enough of those. Yeah. You're gonna see enough white baby yeah. dolls, like. <laughs> And I had to, they don't sell any here in Montreal. Literally, my wife and I were at Walmart today and we saw a black baby doll and we gasped. Mm-hmm. We were like, oh my God, they never. And because, uh, you know, everybody here is white. What? Uh, and and so it's like, we talk a lot about that. And I, I recently was writing an article about sort of like diverse, how to diversify like your kid's toys and the things that you have in your playroom and stuff like that, whether you're an educator or just a parent. Uh, or someone like me who has no kids but 10,000 toys. And uh, they, these Bar- Barbie, uh, who I'm not, don't tend to be a fan of, but they came out with a line of these dolls called Fashionistas, the name of the line. And there's like 200 something dolls in the line, but they, there's like a doll with vitiligo and there's, um, you know, a doll who has no hair and there's a couple in wheelchairs and, you know, just like there, it's, it's a pretty diverse line. And so I bought a couple of them and um, I was doing the alphabet last week as our theme. And uh, so I did like one letter, just like the, for, I worked four days that week. So I did A, B, C, and D. I just did one letter a day we focused on. And D, for D, I brought the dolls uh, along with some other stuff that started with the letter D. And it just like warmed my heart that the whole time the, the, the one of the babies, one of the twins that I work with, Arthur, was just playing with the doll in the wheelchair. He was obsessed with that doll. And I was like, I love this. Like, I love that you have that thing, like that you have access to that. And like, you're seeing, you know, like we read books and like, uh, you know, we about diverse people and like it's not the first time you're seeing someone in a wheelchair right mm-hmm. even if you've never seen a person in your life in a wheelchair like you're seeing images and you're you have this you're seeing dolls and you're seeing things and it just like i just thought it was i mean it's just cool it has wheels like come on man it's a doll with wheels what's cooler than that definitely i wrote my children's books because we didn't have we couldn't find children's books like that for them in the library and when my daughter was two years old we were all about finding literature that we could read to her at bedtime and nothing, nothing looked like her. No, no family, brown yeah. family that was modern with a modern home, modern kitchen, and maybe with a grandparent around. There was nothing like that. So we, we literally had to make mm. it. And that's when we wrote the yep. first and second children's books. And as we're going along, unlike I, I self-published these. These aren't traditionally published. But mm-hmm. I'm telling people, everybody's story is so unique and it's so beautiful get it out there. Like you don't have to be signed with a huge publishing group. You don't have to be the best writer. And but we have incredible artists right here in our communities and people who have gone to school for English that can edit. Like we are a community in more Mm. ways than one. And if you have an idea for a story, 
that you feel will help the next generation understand and love each other, get that book out there. We need it. We need stories like that. We need pictures Absolutely. like that. And me, I don't, I don't have, um, like we don't have that, that, that baby doll, that toy in the wheelchair, but we do have a children's book that does have a child in a wheelchair and it shows mm-hmm. how she gets on the school bus. And it's like, no, mm. you know, like she, everybody went in this yeah. way, she went in that way. And it was like, I'm, yep. like, I'm so happy we found this book because it just, without my child knowing they're being more loving because they're going to say, they're not going to be like, well, how are you going to get on? Well, how does that, you know, it's not <laughs> difference. It's just like, yeah, I've seen it in this book and it's totally normal. Yep. I just love it when moments like that happen where there's not an interruption of like, and then everybody waved by to the wheelchair girl because she couldn't. <laughs> I know. No. And we use her name. And this is sort of like, in you know, a different topic entirely. But like, I, I think there's a really big difference between like tokenizing and being inclusive. I think that when you're to- like, the word tokenizing makes me think of in the 90s, especially is, you know, I think about like, when there'd be a billboard, and it's like, we have one of each, there's like, a white person, and a black person, and an Asian person, and a brown person, and we got them all. That's it. And you know, like, same, and, but different shades. <laughs> yep. And they have the same features, but uh, different shades. But I think it's interesting when like, I can tell when a book is doing that when I'm like, you just put a person in a hijab in the background to mm-hmm. be like, check the box. And then I can tell right when it's like, oh, there are multiple people wearing hijabs in this book. There are multiple people with disabilities in this book. It's not just like, and it feels like, not like you're doing it to just like, be like, I did it. You know, I feel yeah. like there's yeah. Um, there's a difference that we can tell publishers, we can tell when you're doing that. <laughs> and I do feel that it comes from the authentic voices. When it feels authentic, yes. it's because it's becoming coming from mm-hmm. somebody who's authentic. And I think that's where we yep. get intimidated because we are that non-group that is the minority. And it's so hard to get our voice in there. And I'm like, screw it, man. If they're not going to traditionally publish <laughs> you, get your book out there because yeah self-publish that book voice. yeah and when you hear the authentic voice you feel it it touches your heart touches your soul and that's what we need more of in this world so get your book absolutely i have as i mentioned the national the smithsonian is a great resource uh there's one called culturalsurvival.org um, you can search medium.com for different articles and then most of the the uh, news outlets have done, you know, their own, the, the, at least the progressive ones, um, like Vice has done, did a really interesting piece on decolonizing dinner. You know, the New York Times did a, had a, a, an article um, called Everything You Know About Thanksgiving is Wrong. <laughs> everything, excuse me, everything you learn, looking at it right now, everything gotcha. you learned about Thanksgiving is wrong, which uh, was written in, in 2017 oh, wow. and, and has um, some, some interesting analysis of the actual factual timelines of hmm. Thanksgiving, some of which I referred to in our conversation. And, um, and again, the, the, the PBS decolonizing Thanksgiving, there's an organization called Age of Awareness hmm. and, um, you know, combating racism, you know, in schools. So there's, they have a whole toolkit from a couple of years ago on combating racism in schools. I think this is, it's, it's age of awareness, but it, it's on medium, but okay. age of awareness is the overarching is the organization okay, um, cool. that, that created this resource. So, 
there are many. I could certainly send you a list. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. So just as we're winding down, I'm curious if you have any personal projects or work you'd like to plug and where pe- where can people find you on the internet if you would like to be found? I want to be found. Check me out. I'm on Instagram <laughs> at, at Violet Duncan. I'm on Facebook. I have a public page there, Violet Duncan on Facebook. And then my website, violetduncan.com. I made it so easy. <laughs> Email me, violetduncan.com. <laughs> I made it so easy because, yeah, during this time, especially of COVID, we lost 100% of our gigs. We are a family oh, of artists, storytellers. And not only did we have to stay home and try and think of clever ways to <laughs> get money, um, we just lost everything. Everything was in person. So we yeah. definitely got into the virtual realm. And it's been really neat for us because traditionally um, a sickness went around a long time ago, a sickness went around and we were told Mm -hmm. in that story to stay home and the sickness is on the outside of the home and they are creating havoc and you need to sit home and you need to be quiet and you need to work on yourself or a a project. And I really felt like that's what was happening as this sickness was chaos, like a monster. It's actually viewed as a monster in the story as the monster roams around creating chaos and havoc, you turn inwards. And so we've definitely been more uh, focusing on our children during this time. And they have been heavily involved with TikTok. And me and my husband are forced (laughs) to the TikTok dances. So you'll see me posting some of that good stuff on Instagram because why not? (laughs) It's totally not business related, but it's kind of the world that we're in right now. So we're all over the place now with virtual stuff and TikTok fun and Facebook and Instagram live. So be on the lookout for that. Every now and then I do some book readings live. And uh, I really enjoy doing that. I miss it. I miss uh, face-to-face. Yeah. Much to my husband's dismay, I'm a very public person. <laughs> and I have been as, you know, a TV and live stream host for many years and uh, a producer. And, mm. and then, as I mentioned earlier, a personal historian. I've taken all of my journalism skills and when I can, when I have the time. And uh, frankly, when I'm commissioned at a reasonable rate, I do the family story-saving work that I love so much. Um, so... Uh, my website is AllieJoseph.com. I'm in the process of updating that. I have been a live host and writer as well as editor for Salon.com, the uh, news, uh, politics-driven news website that's one of the oldest around since the you know Web 1.0, not to be confused with Slate. Dot com, but it is uh, salon.com. And if you go on there and search for my name, you'll see a lot of articles that I've written now. Not all of them are diversity leaning or a very few of them actually are about Native American history. Uh, but I've done a, quite, a, quite a lot of newsmaker interviews with you know many of the famous people you could think of on there. And you know I have a 20 plus year career as a as a journalist in everything from entertainment to politics and parenting and technology so I am very findable if you even just google (laughs) me I'm at Allie Joseph on Twitter I believe I'm the only one I will tell you that I'm not very active because I consider Twitter a giant time suck and of no personal use to me for for myself or my career so I actually don't don't spend a lot of time on there 
I am the only Allie Joseph on Facebook, as far as I know. I do not Snapchat um, because I am too old and I don't care. <laughs> and, I, I, and, you know, and I, I try to remind my almost teen daughter, who has not allowed me social media yet, uh, that, you know, nothing on the Internet ever goes away. So yeah. this idea that Snapchat and and stories, you know, which I, I use on Instagram. On Instagram, I'm, um, I'm at Alley Two Tribes, which okay. is the first people and the chosen people. So the Jews and the and the native. Oh, I love that. Thank you. And I have another Instagram handle that I've created, but I haven't, you know, I haven't sort of filled it out yet. Mm-hmm. So I will. I can speak about that another time. But uh, yeah, I'm Alley Two Tribes on Instagram. And, uh, and yeah, and I kind of keep it, I try to keep the, the socials to, to a, a reasonable amount because <laughs> as, as you know, especially if you have an ADD mind, like you could go down that rabbit hole. Oh, I, absolutely. I, the only reason that I'm on social media is because of the podcast and I kind of need to be, um, but oh, I, I, you know, I, and it's incarnation. I did not have a Twitter until I had a podcast. <laughs> Oh, I've had it for years. But like I said, you know, people can expect if they're looking for me, they will not see me tweeting aggressively during the day uh, by choice. I am not interested. (laughs) I don't care. Please find me. You can follow me. Uh, You can email me uh, if if it's something relevant to this at AllieJoseph at gmail.com. And, um, you know, I or through my website, which I check less less frequently, Allie at AllieJoseph.com. And uh, I am working on a series of uh, documentary shorts called A Thousand Years of Witness, which Mm -hmm. are indigenous stories of elders from across Indian country. The first episode was accepted to a bunch of film festivals that that COVID canceled. Oh, no. um, It's with a wonderful British director, filmmaker named Brian Downey, who's a friend of mine out near where my reservation is, and, Mm -hmm. um, and another indigenous producer, Ganu Benton, who is a res cousin of mine. And it is, we, we did the first episode and we're, you know, working on raising funds to go to the next nations. We've already shot uh, Navajo Diné. And uh, after that, we have another a series of commitments. So the idea is, you know, once we sort of get to a place production wise that we can resume safely, we're going to do that. And last year, you can find the PBS Independent Lens documentary I produced about my tribe and uh, a number of vital activists in our tribe who have been crusading for decades and decades to get graves protection legislation enacted in the Hamptons, which is, you know, those of you who are listening have heard of the Hamptons, mm-hmm. even before Kim Kardashian, <laughs> there were the Hamptons. And, uh, uh, you know, unlike a lot of other indigenous people in this country who are relocated to reservations, which not everybody knows that where there are Indian reservations in this country, that is not the point of origin for many of of those nations of people, Mm -hmm. our tribe, the Shinnecock, the people of the Stony Shore, uh, have been on our original land for over 10,000 years, never removed. So we are, there are Indians in the Hamptons, and this film called Conscience Point, Mm. which is the PBS documentary, it was released last November, just around prior to Thanksgiving, chronicles, uh, you know, the, the, really tremendous efforts of some cousins of mine to enact graves protection legislation so that in the Hamptons, when you're rich and you buy some land 
and you dig up some some native bones and you you can't just throw it in the dumpster anymore mm. which sadly is often what happens out of uh, both ignorance and um just uh just badness yeah <laughs> yeah and there was never anything by the way to to protect um ancestral land and and mm. the acknowledgement of burial grounds um, and the more scrupulous developers do let the tribe know and let the town know and the, you know and and the historians um and the preservationists, but not everybody. So, yeah. so that's, that's a film that people can find on PBS conscience point. And, uh, you know, I hope to be able to share about some new projects soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for all of that. Thank you for being here. This has been so great. I appreciate you making the time and remember stay rad. there campers. My name is Emmett and I'm the host of Gaze in the Woods, a podcast that explores rural LGBTQIA2 plus experiences from radical fairies and lesbian farmers to backwoods slam poets and community organizers organizing communities the community didn't know where they were all along. Can you have a pride parade when you're the only gay in the village? What is camp when you live in a trailer? And if a genderqueer bear shares their pronouns in the forest and nobody gets it, is anything real? I don't know, but let's find out together on Gaze in the Woods, an Upford Network podcast. Dungeons, Dragons, Canada, the Multiverse Theory, Corgis, Queer Representation, Reconciliation, Angels, Demons, Squirrels, Moose, Moose and Squirrels, Sorcerers, Dinosaurs, Forests, Giants, Rogues, Warlocks, Plains, Sewers, Lavender, Natural Toonie, a Canadian Dungeons and Dragons podcast, right here on the Upford Network. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.